Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing, my friend? Great. I made for the first time a pumpkin spice cake. Did I tell you this? A pumpkin spice cake? A pumpkin spice cake, yeah. Okay. From scratch? Yes. And I roasted my own pumpkin in the oven and then pureed it in a blender and then added spices. And it was really lovely. I am proud of you, my guy. I didn't know you baked like that. I knew you could cook, but I didn't know you baked like that. Yeah, well, sometimes. uh, Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Oh, speaking of which, Derek, you'll be proud of me. I went to a Halloween party last night at, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. at the school here. Well, no, I'm trying to think. Only one person, I think, came dressed as a goth. And, uh, yeah, they killed it. And then mm-hmm. one of my friends dressed up as another member, as another one of our friends. So it gave us the idea that next year for Halloween, we're going to dress up as each other. Mm-hmm. And I've already picked my target, so that's going to be fun. Um, and I carved my first pumpkin, or at least tried to carve my first pumpkin. Mm-hmm. I'm going to send you pictures, but that nice. thing is hideous. Wait, didn't you and I carve a pumpkin with Paul a couple of years ago? What did I carve, Derek? I don't remember. Did you exactly? Did you ever see me handle that knife? Did you see me thrust it into that pumpkin at all? Well, you were there. I I guess I was there. You watched me carve a pumpkin. <laughs> I was, then. Yeah, that's what I did. I watched you carve a pumpkin. I was like, I don't need to be anywhere near anything artistic, so I I avoided uh, carving the pumpkin because I, mm. I wasn't about to be the reason that it got ruined. So, yeah. Also, I uh, taught my uh, I taught my Bible professor a new word. I told you that she was like this uh, German lady mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. like got this dry, witty sense of humor. Uh, I taught her the word stunting. Are you familiar with that term? Stunting? No. Yes. So it's this practice of showing off on social media, usually with uh, money or vacation spots or cars, things that you don't own or things that you actually only have done once, but you keep posting about them. And then it's like all for this purpose of showing off to people that you don't even know or like with things that you don't really own or are in short supply. So... It's stunting. We were using that to talk about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, I think, mm-hmm. who like borrowed the goblets from the temple to like show off for all these lords and sex workers that you know didn't even know mm-hmm. God like that. And you know, Doctor Call was like, "What would you call this a gospel love? Like, if you could put a word to it." And you know, I raised my hand and I was like, "Doctor Call, that's a gospel of stunting." And she was like, "Stunting? I don't know this word. What does it mean?" And then she proceeded to use it three more t- times in the lecture, and I've never been so proud of oh, myself. Oh wow, nice! <laughs> she enunciated it so well. Like, if you could just like picture this seventy-some-year-old uh, German lady saying the word "stunting," like perfect enunciation, and she used it. Per- and she used it correctly every time. I was so proud of her, and I was so proud of me. So, oh, good. It was a, it was a good week. A good week, even though I'm still behind on my readings. But that's beside the point. Uh, anyway, should we, should we get into the content for this week? Yeah, I'm wondering if that's a good word to talk about our gospel culture in the church. And there's a lot Ooh. of people that focus on image rather than substance. Ooh, Ooh. like what it looks Derek. like, what it sounds like. Oh, oh! You about to say a word, Derek? Uh, that's about all. That's all I was gonna say. Okay, it's a good word though. I, I appreciate yeah, well, you bringing I'm that sure in. We'll, I didn't we'll even talk make about that these connection later. And it, and this isn't just the membership. I think the leaders really want to focus on the image a lot. Yeah, and yeah. and I'm a little bit uncomfortable with some of that sometimes. Hmm. Understood. Understood. That's very valid, man. Um. But yeah, let's see. Uh, let's see what happens with the conversation uh, when we when we hop into this content real quick. But before we do, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com/podcastnetwork. That's dialoguejournal.com/podcastnetwork. So we are in, uh, what is this? What is this? Doctrine and Covenants sections 125 through 128. Um, Just by way of uh, background, I suppose, we're still in Nauvoo, but these are some letters and these are some brief instructions to this, well, to specific saints. 
Um, I, th- I think I can't really talk about 126 without pretty much giving the whole thing away. And I know you want to talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose what I really want to give some background for is uh, section uh, 127, which is basically Joseph getting some uh, some uh, revelation on baptisms for the dead. But he's also getting some other counsel as well and giving some counsel in this particular letter. He's giving, uh, like at the time that he's writing this letter, he's kind of on the run from the law. Just mm-hmm. I think he's been implicated in an assassination attempt on Lilburton W. Boggs. And, uh, you know, people are after him to, like, either, you know, imprison him or possibly lynch him. Just there's all this stuff going on. Joseph Smith just cannot seem to stay out of some trouble. Um, So that's kind of where that is coming out of. That is a I'm pretty sure these are given around the same time. Yeah, they're both in September 1842. So that's kind of the context for these particular sections i don't know if you want to add anything derek before we dive in nope i don't think so all right cool then let's go ahead and talk about uh these actual sections uh i don't have anything from 126 derek so do you want to begin there sure let me look at 126 we've got a short sort of reassurance to brigham young so he's been doing a lot of missionary work a lot of other stuff and then Joseph says, okay, you don't have to do that anymore. You can spend time with your family and you're excused from doing the stuff that you otherwise would have been having to do. And I like how verse 3 puts it. I therefore command you to send my word abroad and take a special care of your family from this time henceforth and forever. And we we do a lot of lip service about families in the church. It's all about family and in many ways, we're more the church of the family than we are the church of Jesus Christ, culturally speaking. But l- Do you feel like that's an idol? Yeah, I do. I do. But there is okay. a place, obviously, for families in the scriptures, but it's how do you implement this family. And for a lot of people, the real family is chosen family. And another thing is, it's how you treat your family. And I think the LGBTQ community is probably the best expert as to what real family is like the people Mm. that share your dna but will not share the roof of their house with you that's not family right no matter Mm -hmm. what the the genetic testing says Mm -hmm. family is really shown by who actually shows up Mm. and who Mm. takes you and who supports you all those things so let's talk a little bit about one thing that Derek, I got to say, that reminds me of something in the Bible. Um, when Jesus identifies who his family is, mm-hmm. um, do you know what I'm making a reference to when like some people yep. come? Okay. just I love that verse so much. I don't know it off the top of my head, but um, some people come looking for Jesus yep. saying, like, your family is looking for you. And Jesus is just like, who is my family? Who is my brother mm-hmm. and my sister mm-hmm. and, my, and my mother? Like, these people right. who do what I asked them to do. Right. These people who follow my word, that's my family. That's my brother, mm-hmm. my sister, mm-hmm. and my brother. Mm-hmm. That's and, in, you know, it's, in Mark 3. Yes. Mark three it's one of my parallel. favorite yeah. moments of Jesus because it's just, I mean, it's just cold-blooded for one thing, but at the same time, it's also just a profound measure mm-hmm. of exactly who your family is and who deserves your association and who deserves your time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see people a lot of the times, particularly on social media, being uh, way too diplomatic with members of their family when they are being, you Mm know, all kinds of bigoted. And uh, I know there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast who, you know, struggle with this kind of thing. And it's very valid. And I sympathize with it to an extent. Um, But like, I, I feel like one of our biggest struggles when it comes to this whole family thing is that we don't really uh, put a hard boundary on who deserves our association, even within our own families. Mm -hmm. 
we engage in toxic behavior or thought patterns like, oh, this person is our family, therefore we should never sever this relationship or we should never cut a person off because they're family. And, you know, in the black community, this is huge. Like we have been conditioned to endure all kinds mm-hmm. of abuse uh, because, you know, we be abusing phrases like we all we got. So we be abusing uh, that. And, you know, so many of us in the black community have grown up with very unhealthy boundaries or at least an inability to um, establish healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but all this to say that uh, what Jesus had cited in that particular verse should be a good measure of anyone who is entitled to, you know, your company, to your time. If members of your own, if your own blood is not walking in the way of Christ, or if your own blood is Mm -hmm. just refusing to be, um, you know, not a bigot, you're more than entitled to establish some firm and some healthy boundaries there and act as Jesus did in that particular moment. Yeah, and I'm thinking about probably one of the most important facets of the Doctrine and Covenants as a whole is the the piece in section 121 about unrighteous dominion and Ah. how the the powers of heaven are righteously deployed only through patience and persuasion rather than coercion. Mm -hmm. And we have Mm -hmm. to see this when we get uh, parents of LGBTQ kids. A lot of them try to use coercion and other forms of force um including torture therapy conversion therapy whatever therapy whatever trying to ungay people but that's not gonna work but i'm reminded of what it says in colossians 3 verse 21 fathers do not provoke your children so that they will not become disheartened it is a commandment not to uh, disturb your children in that way Right, if you've got queer children and you make them live a life that is completely unlivable, then you're violating a commandment. Why is it that Mormons talk a lot about keeping the commandments, but they never list the commandments? Which is why I'm behind on that project that I said I was gonna do. But <laughs> that's why it's important because most people when they say keep the commandments, they talk about like tithing and chastity and word of wisdom and all the and like three or four, maybe five or six different ones, but they don't ever talk about feeding the poor as a commandment. They don't ever talk about keeping your kids safe as a commandment, right? They don't talk about getting vaccinated Mm -hmm. as a commandment. Love your neighbors yourself, right? There's a lot of stuff that, um, that, you know, this, I think this uh, enumerating the commandments project is going to go a lot like this class that you want me to do. I say I'm going to do it, and then I never actually do it. Oops. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's a commandment. But you're going to do it. You're going to do it, though. Right. And it, like I'm saying back here in 126, verse 3, it says, I therefore command you to take a special care of your family from this time. Yeah. So that's that's basically all I had for section 126. Mm. All right. Cool. I like that. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. But uh, just to be clear, you are you are doing the course. You are doing the course. Wait, are you trying to use this unrighteous dominion or are you trying to use persuasion? (sighs) Okay, I'll 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 rephrase this. But right now, yes, I'm using unrighteous dominion, (laughs) unrighteous dominion as your friend, as somebody who loves you, as somebody Uh, who wants to see you kill it. uh I need this course. Okay, and the people need this course. And I'm going to bug you about it until it's okay, done. Okay, fine. And very good, very good. Um, cool. So let me go to 127 real quick, if I may. I know you got a. Mm-hmm. I know you got some things you want to say there. In fact, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, what you wanted to talk about in uh, verse two, uh, with regard to glorying in tribulation. Now, I see something beautiful in what Paul has written regarding glorying, or what. Paul has written regarding glory and tribulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm sure you're going to want to talk a little bit more about that. So let me skip that for now and uh, move on to verse three, where there seems to be an acknowledgement of God as a uh, God of the oppressed. 
and the invocation of one of his titles, uh, the God of Israel. I believe we talked about this briefly a few weeks ago in our discussion on uh, Liberty Jail. Usually when this title is used for God, the God of Israel, it's to point to God's justice as the God of those Israelites he led out of bondage and out of Egypt into liberation and into the promised land. That's the God Joseph is invoking right now. That's the God he's glorying in now. And uh, there's certainly a strength we can pull from Mm -hmm. that, considering what Joseph is going through at this particular time in his life. He's in hiding, dodging arrest, possible lynching under suspicion for conspiracy to assassinate uh, former Governor Boggs. Joseph really can't get away from this mess, but he is nonetheless taking comfort in and glorying in the God of the oppressed to deliver him and remind himself, as it says in verse 4, that there is a reward in heaven. For all this hope in the midst of trial, he uses the words of the Lord to say, let your diligence and your perseverance and patience and your works be redoubled, and you shall in no wise lose your reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Did you notice those bookends in verse four? Like this whole sentence Mm -hmm. is preceded and succeeded by saith the Lord, which we've had a conversation about a little bit ago. And it seems that these words are included around some tough counsel. Uh, Besides that, though, I I do want to acknowledge how hard it can be to glory in tribulation or to glory in the Lord in times of tribulation. One of the most intriguing things I'm learning right now about the different liberationist theologies is how difficult it can be to fight for a form of salvation that doesn't seem to make things better for us in this life. This is is one of the biggest criticisms, I think, that is presented by womanist theology to a black theology that uh, James Cone presents. That, uh, for example... Uh, In Cone's Black Theology, it focuses a lot, and uh, Dolores Williams would argue too much on the experience of oppression rather than the struggle against oppression, and that it might focus too much on the experience of salvation in the afterlife than than salvation in the here and now. After Mm -hmm. all, Mm -hmm. this is kind of, this is the illusion of uh, what Joseph Smith is talking about at the end of verse 4. End of verse four, a reward in the life to come, which, you know, sounds great and all, but what about the here and now? And even in uh, Negro spirituals, even in slave songs, the illusion of so many of these songs is the symbolism of home. And home often refers to a heavenly paradise that we have to go through a brutal and undignifying death to experience. And that's just not satisfactory for some people. I mean, it's not satisfactory for a lot of people, Let's like to be fair. And I wanted to uh, quote Dolores Williams on uh, one of the definitions that she gives of a, uh, a real salvation. Let me just find this real quick, see where this is. Okay, and this is actually her uh, referring to African-American spiritual songs. She writes, uh, slaves seem more concerned about a process of moving toward positive transformation and destination than with identifying individual acts as sinful. That salvation, like sin, is not found in one act, but in the process of alleviating collective behaviors that are sinful. So we have, uh, according to Dolores Williams, also Kelly Brown Douglas, and a couple of other womanist Mm -hmm. theologians, This salvation is rooted in a struggle against sin, a struggle against oppression, and a liberation and a social salvation in this life. There isn't a salvation, I mean, there is a salvation in the life to come, but salvation should also concern, should also concern an alleviation of trial and pain and comfort in the here and now, in this life as well. And uh, that is something I just wanted to bring out because I feel like we can get too much into an almost toxic focus on persecution or oppression or pain in this life 
and will talk way too much about the rewards in the life to come without really acknowledging or addressing the suffering that's happening in the here and now or the ways in which we can fix things now. Um, it feels almost like a cop-out is what I'm trying to say. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that as a very real thing because I, I would hate to speak so positively of Joseph Smith's words here without acknowledging a, a very real concern with the here and the now. So I wanted to name that while also uh, lifting up Joseph's words as well to say that there is a, a great power. There is definitely a beauty in glorying in a... Uh, you know, in tribulation, because it is in those moments, so many of those moments, actually, throughout the Doctrine and Covenants narrative, where we have seen some profound uh, revelations and counsels and blessings that were given to the saints in the midst of some of their most trying times. So there is certainly a beauty and a reason to uh, glory in tribulation. And uh, yeah, just wanted to put that out there and uh, see if you had any thoughts. Yeah, I had some curiosities. One is, and this probably is a longer conversation, but what probably. would a womanist analysis of our fourfold mission of the church uh, bring to light? So we've got proclaiming the gospel, yep, redeeming the dead, perfecting the saints, and then taking care of the those who are suffering as mm -hmm. our fourfold mm -hmm. mission. And each of those four fourfold pieces have some piece that has to do with this life. Yeah. Yeah. Including the redeeming of the dead, actually, as we see later in section 128, has something to do with us and our mm -hmm. and our salvation here and now, contributing to uh, the salvation of others. So all of these have mm -hmm. something to do with making change in this life and making a difference here. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what where that analysis would lead. I. I think you would really like uh, Kelly Brown Douglas's book, The Black Christ, because mm -hmm. uh, she actually talks quite a quite a bit about this. In fact, one of my favorite uh, sentences from her book is something along the lines of, at least for black folks, that it is precisely by imitating Christ that we bring salvation into our community. Salvation comes by Christ-like behavior, by caring for the poor and the needy, by basically doing what, uh, you know, Christ did in associating with the least of these and stuff. At least that's how she would define salvation. And therefore, I think how she would talk about our fourfold mission. Um, but anyway, that's just the first thing I thought of when you when yeah. you talked about that interpretation. And it also ties back in with this glorying in tribulation because part of the glorying or, or boasting, we would say, boasting in our trials is that it brings us closer to Christ it mm -hmm. makes us more dependent on Christ, and it shares us in the same fate with Christ. And mm -hmm. there's something mm -hmm. special and beautiful about that. Big time. Let me look at, uh, so this is from Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but this is the one that says that because we've been justified by faith, we now have or be able to access peace with God through Christ. And then it says, because of this, we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we also boast in our sufferings. And this is the King James has uh, glory and tribulations. But we, mm. we boast in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And this hope is what doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in us through the Holy Spirit. Mm. And I think that, that's true. And here Paul wasn't speaking from the cheap seats, as they say. Like, he was in a spot, like, uh, which is exactly why um, Joseph resonates so much with Paul. I think um, we've got a lot of intertextual echoes in these sections with the New Testament, and especially with Paul. And I'm going to talk about this maybe later, but to me... And of course, I'm very biased because the New Testament is my primary interest. I really think that we are the New Testament church. We are the restored first century church of the New Testament. We should be more passionately engaged with the New Testament than any other denomination. Uh, for me, the, the New Testament should be uh, 
the sin I, I i mean there's kind of this overused phrase the first among equals right but to mm-hmm. me i think you can't really be the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints without having a significant engagement with the new testament a lot of a lot of latter-day saints are like all about the book of mormon and yeah i love the book of mormon too but the book of mormon is a witness to the bible and so it's a supplement to the bible and i think primarily we are the bible church or at least i think we should be Mm. and we should take the bible more seriously than others but where are our where are all of our biblical scholars like where are the people doing actual work in the new testament i don't think we take it uh, as seriously as as some other denominations culturally but it's in our sources it's in our if you look at how brigham and joseph preached they engaged the new testament very thoroughly and they were drawing upon it all the time. They were preaching from it. And here we've got this. They were depending on it. And I'd love to get back to some of that. And even the, the stuff about baptism for the dead, that is in dialogue with the New Testament. Uh, quite explicitly in section 128. Anyway, so that's kind of what I wanted to say is I would hope that we would engage the New Testament more why is it that you think now now you grew up in the church but why right. is it you think that we don't make a bigger deal about the new testament you know i didn't really notice this until uh and you know it may have started long before this but i didn't really notice this until all the emphasis that president hinckley was putting on the book of mormon you know reading it every day read it by the end of the year and an added measure of the spirit will come into your life. But I do remember noticing after that uh, just how much emphasis we were putting on the Book of Mormon and how much we were reading from it and sourcing it. And it's not that we just didn't uh, use the Bible, but I felt very strongly it was almost as if we were trying to, for lack of a better word, compensate uh in some way using the Book of Mormon. I, I don't really have any other idea, but I think we were just trying to legitimize the Book of Mormon more by using it mm-hmm. as often as, as we were. Uh, and after all, that is one of our, if not our greatest evidence for our truth claims is the Book of Mormon. So we refer to it often. And yeah, I don't, I don't really know, but that is, a, that is my supposition off the top of my head. Hmm. Okay. There is one piece I wanted to talk about in section 127 about record keeping. And it's about, in context, the keeping the records, having witnesses to record in a very solemn way the ordinances for the dead, baptism for the dead. And the idea is that whatever is written here and recorded on earth, those books will get opened and we will be judged out of those books. And I think there's something very, very important about record-keeping. Latter-day Saints have always been a record-keeping people. We've got all these bushels bushel, bushels full of records from the, from the 19th century. We have a very well-documented, compared to other uh, denominations, a very well-documented origin to our church and the early history of our church. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think it's important for LGBT folks to keep records mm. for a couple of reasons. One is, yes, then those will be able to, we will, those will be uh, opened up on Judgment Day and people will be held accountable for what they did to us. And they're not going to have any excuse. They're going to say, well, I didn't know. Well, yeah, no, we told you. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to say, well, I was a product of my time. Like, nope. I was a product of that time too, and I still was on board with justice and equality and dignity for for LGBTQ folks. So people are going to be without excuse when those records are opened. But I think there's another purpose to keeping these records, and it's not just for the end of time, but it's also for future generations to know what struggle we went through, to know the endurance to know what sacrifices, to know who didn't make it, right? We don't want to just put a happy bow on it and say, whoops, well, we all got it right now. We can just skip over 
the part where we got it wrong because that does not do justice to the memory of those who didn't survive the injustice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, I have a theory that after the change happens in the church, and you know, I've, I, I don't know if I've said this here before, but I think that we, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are the most pro-gay of the anti-gay churches. Like if you divide all the churches into pro-gay churches and anti-gay churches, we're the most pro-gay of the anti-gay churches. I don't know if that's fair or if other queer people will agree with me on that, but there is a difference in tone and in strategy compared to some other anti-gay churches, and it is pretty different. Anyway, but after the change happens, we're going to go from the most pro-gay of the anti-gay churches to the most pro-gay of the pro-gay churches, and that will be something to rejoice about. But after that happens, there's going to be this tendency to just pretend that we got it right all along, and that's where these records need to come out. There needs to be an exhibit on homophobia in the church Mm -hmm. until Jesus comes back. We should never forget that. People are going to want to just move quick and jump to the, well, we got it right now, and they're going to go back and paint it so that, like, oh, look at all this stuff all along. We, we, and like, mm-hmm. no, we really need to, to do justice to telling the story correctly. And the sad thing about that is, if you look at the apologetic material that our church has produced, it does that. It's it it skips over the the hard parts typically. Although we're doing a little bit better on that, it still doesn't doesn't really want to get into the really difficult things. And it's uh yeah, it's all about preserving image and reputation rather than reparations. And yeah. and here's where what's going to happen is I think a lot of our church leaders are worried that if the change happens, then they're going to be remembered as wrong. Right. Oh, look, they were wrong and backwards. But here's what I'm going to say is the real tragedy is not that they're going to be remembered as wrong, but they're not going to be remembered at all. Hmm. I really think that when the when the history is told, if it isn't told right, it's just going to skip over that. And it's going to make it seem like we're pro-gay since 1830. And we're just going to skip over that part of our history and not even tell it. And I think it needs to be told. So we need to keep records. We need to curate and collect exhibits now that will eventually be part of the homophobia exhibit in the Church History Museum. Mm. Anyway, I don't know if that's kind of a weird controversial thing, but I think it's something that I'm feeling. Well, okay. Well, that's more than valid. And I feel like you know, we've talked about this a few times, uh, the value of record keeping. And, you know, we can't deny how much value that the church, um, or at least how often they highlight the value of record keeping to a point, it would seem. Like, uh, we, we have a historical introduction into every section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and there's a whole reason for that. Like, I believe we have these things so that we can read into their proper context or read these revelations in their proper context. Because, you know, that's what history is. History is the context. And we have these uh, verses throughout the Bible and uh, the Book of Mormon that talk about the value of record keeping. Like, one of the biggest distinguishing factors between the Nephites and the Lamanites, even though there are some problematic aspects of this that we got to look into is the fact that the Nephites kept records and the Lamanites did not. Like, that was one of the things that explained the difference in, you know, their civilizations, their behavior, and in their ability to, uh, their ability to follow Christ. And, of course, we have uh, the sons of, uh, the children of Issachar that were tasked Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, keeping records that they might, or that they kept the records or remembered things that they might be able to tell Israel how they ought to function in the future. And in the case of the Book of Mormon, keep records so that we might learn from our past, that we might uh, correct or know the error of our ways. And I think that is so important when we talk about record keeping, because in this particular context, if we don't have those records, then we don't really have an opportunity to learn from you know, what we did wrong and how we can prevent the same mistakes that we are 
just continue making mm-hmm. all the time. Um, now, you could also argue that perhaps it might not help anyway, since the whole story of the Bible or one of the overarching themes of the Bible is people learning lessons and then promptly forgetting them. But, you know, neither here nor there. What I'm trying to validate is the fact that these records serve a role in our institutional improvement. And um, without records, we don't really have that opportunity. And without records, we don't really have a lens, a proper lens, through which to view ourselves, view what our identity is or how it was formed. That's one of the core Mm -hmm. arguments of... um, uh, programs and initiatives and uh, you know things like critical race theory is when you know your history you are in a better place to understand where you are in your present or how it has shaped what you are now mm-hmm. in a way that you are able mm-hmm. to adequately address it like that's the importance of knowing your history so um, I, I just want to validate what you said there there is an immense value to uh, you know queer folks of today keeping their records that we might have them in the future because that will help us understand how we got to the point you know that we will be in the future mm-hmm. and how to how to move how to move forward yeah that makes a lot of sense and i just i'm curious about the mindset of these people who tried to defend the anti-LGBTQ prejudice in the church. Like, what do they think, what reward do they think they're going to get? Because <laughs> it's clear that they're that they're seeking some type of, like, oh, I'm, I'm being a valiant defender of the whatever it is, you know. But, you know, think about this. This is the church that in 40 or 50 years or whenever the change happens, they're not going to look back at you, not you, James, but you, the hypothetical defender of the injustice they're not going to look back at you as a hero they're going to throw you under the bus this is the same church that threw brigham under the bus do you think they won't throw you under the bus too no (laughs) yeah it like it will be it will it will it will it will cost them nothing at all to say look they were people of the time we weren't responsible that never was official that xyz like we we did our best and god fixed you know they're gonna, they're gonna say all that stuff, and you will not get any credit for uh, being anti-LGBT long after it. It's clear that it's wrong to do so. So, anyway, mm-hmm. that's the importance of these records. Yeah, <laughs> so people can know that there was people doing the hard part before the hard part became the easy part. Right. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want to say about section uh, 127 or record keeping? No, I don't think so. Most of what I wanted to say connects with this, uh, the the sort of sealing the welding links of 128 and bat- baptism yeah. for the dead. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, um, you know, you've spoken about the... I don't think I'm going to say anything I haven't said before about this. And In fact, I'm pretty sure I've referenced this verse in the past when talking about similar things, but my focus is going to be on verse 15. It reads, Now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation, as Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. Close quote. Now, you, you've spoken about the uh, fourfold mission of the church, and every single mission is relational in nature. Proclaiming the gospel is relational. Who you're proclaiming it to and how. Perfecting the saints is relational. That's plural, and Paul literally said perfection doesn't happen without each other. Serving the poor and the needy is relational, and redeeming the dead is relational. I, I've said before that... Uh, that Christianity is interdependent by design. We require each other to fulfill our discipleship. We have to operate in collaboration with each other. We're we're talking about our dead right now in this section, but in principle, we are talking about the most vulnerable 
or about people without access because of something they couldn't help. And we're tasked with granting them access as disciples of Christ. That is at the heart of discipleship, making sure that people have their needs met. And Jesus condemns societies that shirk this responsibility. Uh, You talked about this last week with uh, Sodom's inhospitality. This is why we can't be made perfect without tending to our dead. Our, 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 Our failure to look after those who are most vulnerable or those without access, that's going to harm our souls and put our salvation in jeopardy. So yeah, they need us and we need them too. That's why I say uh, Christianity is by design interdependent. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've said this before and it's kind of like what you've, what you've said is especially highlighted when we look at the queer community. Because there's a lot of people in the church like, well, I'm sealed to my... You see all these pretty pictures on Instagram of like people glorying and boasting in their sealing rather than boasting in their trials. They're boasting in like, oh, we were sealed and look at this pretty family we've got. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how can you boast when you're leaving out queer people? Do you think mm. that you can be saved without queer people being saved? Do you think that you can be sealed without queer people being sealed? Like, mm-hmm. literally, I think, now obviously in context, Joseph is talking about the dead, but who else would have been left out if not the dead, given what they knew at the time? Mm-hmm. And people say, well, given what we know at the to- about the time, queer people are left out, right? It's, it, I, I think there's a, a, an expansion of and I've said this before, is that when you look at the progress of the gospel, it's like throwing a rip a rock into a pool. You have an ever-expanding circle of ripples that get ripples upon ripples, and it expands farther than you think. And so the restoration existed with only one person being included. Originally, the young boy, Joseph, was the only person. And then that got expanded wider and then that got expanded wider and then it included uh the dead right and then we see this ever expanding circle of inclusion with uh go even things like israel is sort of the original ripple that god infused uh, some particular purpose in the earth and then that expanded to the gentiles and so we see an ever-expanding circle of inclusion and of course it's going to expand to include queer people like i i don't know how it can't right i think the most honest assessment of our tradition and our history is that my position and my hopes are more faithful to our sources to our tradition to our history to our theology than the anti-gay piece people are going to look back and say how did that anti-gay stuff ever fit in our beautiful inclusive theology people are going to be baffled whereas now they're baffled at how we could include queer people but i'm just surprised at the arrogance of these straight people who think that they're all set they're all saved and and queer people aren't or i mean at least so far as they know they have no no idea how queer people are saved but they're they're content and they're happy like they should say you know what my family's not complete if my if our queer people aren't here mm. and so i think that is uh like no one no one can be perfect can be perfected until we're all perfected and so i think that's something that that this uh this brings out and i want to talk about about sealing for a second I don't want to go into a big thing about sealing because we can talk about it more in the, uh, you know, when we talk about DNC 132 and other times. But there's just one piece of the sealing that I wanted to talk about. And it is the sealing of the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. So in this text, you see John has a vision of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of them were sealed. And as it turns out, when you look at the 14th chapter of Revelation, these 144,000 were unmarried. They were virgins. They were not, um, they were not coupled. So they were sealed, but they weren't married. And I'm like, wow, isn't that interesting? Like the real sealing is 
being sealed to Christ. I think that's that's what every other sealing is pointing towards. A lot of people want to use Christ as a as a f- ticket to be with their family. But like I've said before, once you go into Disneyland, you're in Disneyland, you don't need the ticket, you throw the ticket away. And I think that's how people treat Jesus. They treat people they treat Jesus just as the instrument or the ticket or the means to be with their family and their family is actually in Tillich's words the their ultimate concern that which is their idol their god their their most important thing and so i just want to name that even the new testament has a very expansive and inclusive concept of sealing that really destabilizes the cultural priority that we've put on on a very narrow understanding of sealing. Hmm. And I just want to reassure anyone that's not sealed, because, you know, I'm not sealed to anyone, um, although under in this sense I'm sealed to Christ. But for people that are currently excluded from the temple, I just want to let you know that God is a God of unconditional love. God is a God of backup plans god is a god of exceptions and god is a god of adjustment right we see this with brigham earlier in section 126 about yeah well you did what you could and now now it's you can't do anymore so you don't have to do anymore uh Mm -hmm. we're not required in the gospel to run farther than we have uh strength or is it run faster than we have strength i think it's run faster we're not required to run faster than we have strength and I love the fact that God is love. First John 4 testifies very clearly that God is love. God is not exclusion. God is not out to play gotcha. God is not out to say, well, do you know the, the secret password to get in? And if you don't, then we're going to get you. No, there is nothing that will exclude us from God's love. God's love is unconditional. We see this in the concluding um, the amazing concluding poetry of Romans chapter 8, where nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing. Like, not even the temple, not even the lack of the temple. None of those things matter. Not even the lack of ordinances. Not even the lack of uh, certain covenants. Like, none of these things matter. If you look at Paul's theology, we're not saved by rituals. We're saved by faith. And these rituals, like circumcision, are not necessary for salvation. And I think that is really what the salvation is, is it's what you become. And yes, if the rituals help you become a better person, then yeah, you get to rise as the person you have become in the resurrection. But if you're trying to use the the rituals as a get out of jail free card where you can just do whatever you want and and say oh well i'm sealed and you boast in your sealing like the new testament early new testament believers boasted in their uh, circumcision uh that's a big problem i'm reminded of what it says in james chapter two about faith and works like Mm -hmm. some people say well you've got works and i've got the covenant i'm like yeah your covenant is worthless. It doesn't mean anything unless it's comp- accompanied by works. And it, similarly in 1 Corinthians 13, your your knowledge, your doctrine, your, your covenants, anything like that, unless it's accompanied by love and actual transformation, doesn't give you any credit. So, mm. and I think this is kind of along the lines of what I said back when we had that anthology of biblical topics uh on the temple where I quoted Jeremiah seven and other things. About- oh man. Ah, I was, ho- I was actually going to go to that next. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that's, yeah, go ahead, go there. That's everything I said about, we've got to de <laughs> we've got to deconstruct all of this mess that Satan has pasted over our concept of sealing mm-hmm. and covenant and family. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's tricky because people want some instant security. And let me just tell you, if you look at the scriptures, there's no instant security. There's no cheap substitute for doing the actual work of following Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where you get your security. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so let's, um, when we talk about baptism for the dead, it, 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 this is a good example of God making a way where there was no way. People didn't think oh, that Oh, there you it could, is again. People didn't think that you could be saved if you died without hearing the gospel, but he's like, oh, we've got exceptions. Oops, you think that this is important, then we're gonna make a way to have it. God is going to make a way. So if you yeah. don't have the ordinances, if you don't have access to the temple, yeah, don't worry about that. God will deal with that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what were you going to say about the temple? Well, shoot, like, in all that, you made me think about Jeremiah chapter 7 specifically. And uh, this is still fresh in my mind because I literally just read this this week for class. Mm. And uh, I couldn't help but think think about just how cold Jeremiah was in, you know, addressing why he wouldn't go to the temple. Like he actually declared in Jeremiah 7, or sorry, in Jeremiah 36, verse 5, that he was barred from entering the temple. But when you go and you read Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 15 or so, you actually see him say something else. Um, Not so much that he was barred from the temple, but even if he was barred, you kind of get the impression he would not go uh, to the temple for a couple of reasons. Uh, in verse 3, we get a hint where it says, Amend your ways and your doings so that I can dwell with you in this place. This is the Lord talking about his temple. But then he also talks about these other reasons that Jeremiah will not go to the temple. God demands the practice of uh, social justice, especially regarding the alien, the widow, the orphan, just all kinds of socially socially vulnerable groups and letting go of other gods, particularly idols. And, you know, in our particular context, that could be the family over God or this value of heteronormativity or white supremacy over God. Mm-hmm. We hold on to a lot of particular idols, a lot of different uh, Baals and Astartes or however you say those the names of those gods I can't pronounce. Um But he straight up calls the temple a den of robbers. Like, straight up calls it a den of robbers. No longer is it God's house. Because so long as we are engaged in practices that prioritize other gods or other idols or other things over the value of these vulnerable groups, then the temple is not God's house. Which kind of has some frightening and chilling implications for us as a church. Like, so long as gay people cannot go, so long as queer people cannot enter into the temples of our God, is, are those, in fact, the temples of God? Like, yeah. inequity and idolatry are two sides of the same coin, you know what I'm saying? So long as there is inequity in the church, there is idolatry. So long as inequity is in the church, idolatry is going to be in the church as well. So, like, can we honestly say that our temples are the house of God if queer folks aren't allowed in. Like, this is what I got from reading Jeremiah this past week. Right, because God is, that, is where the queer people mm-hmm. are. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, that's a problem, man. That is a problem. And I got mixed feelings about even going to the temple right now simply because I know that even though there is good work I can do in the temple and that there are people who can benefit from my being there, like, I can do work in there, I'm just like... You know, especially after reading these verses, is this even the house of God while there's this inequity, while there is this prioritization of the exclusion of queer folks over their inclusion? Like, we, like, what do we do with that, man? You what know, it's, are we doing with it's that? It's really interesting that our church, structurally and culturally, cares more about the salvation of dead straight people than living queer people. Mm-hmm. Like we have more knowledge about the plan of salvation for dead people than we have for queer people. We have that nothing. more resources devoted to the inclusion of dead people than we have queer people. And so you people wonder why is there a suicide crisis in our context? And yes, there's a lot of factors. It's a very complicated thing. You can't boil it down to any one thing any one variable but one of the con pieces of the context is a lot of folks in the church who are queer end up with this idea that it's better off to be dead 
That is, either they'll be fixed when they're dead, or that we know more about the plan of salvation for dead people, or that your ordinances will be done if you're dead. Like, there's a whole bunch of ways in which the fact that we know in more detail the plan of salvation for dead people than for living queer people is a problem. It is a gap in everyone's knowledge. It's not, it's not just queer people's knowledge, but all of us. We, as a people, have a significant gap in the salvation of queer people, the salvation of single people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that when we get this fixed, we will be the envy of so many other churches because we have ongoing revelation, we have an open canon, we have stuff that the Protestants and Catholics do not have. We have a mechanism for receiving new canonized scripture. And that will be like, oh, wow, the Latter-day Saints actually could fix it with legitimacy and power and authority. And that will be the envy of the world. And that reminds me a little bit of Christer Stendhal. He was a bishop in the Church of Sweden, a Lutheran and a New the Harvard Tes- guy? Yep, New Testament professor at Harvard. Okay. And he came up with the three rules for religious understanding. I must have said these before here. But here are his three rules. Number one, when you're trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies. Number two, don't compare your best to their worst. And I think, especially when we talk about Islam, a lot of people want to violate one and two. They want to um, ask the enemies of Islam rather than listening to them, uh, the Muslims themselves. And they also want to compare like Osama bin Laden with Dr. King, right? You can't compare mm-hmm. Christianity's best with Islam's worst. And then the third rule is leave room for holy envy. And Stendhal meant that you should be willing to recognize something in the other tradition that you wish you could have in some way in your own tradition. And I think there's, there's, you know what? Actually, Baptism for the Dead was one of Stendhal's holy envies. That is what he said. Yeah. That is what he said. It's in the, oh my gosh, it's in the video. It's in the video. Um, sorry, just I was recalling just uh, these missionary videos I used to travel with during the course of my mission, and one of them was mm-hmm. about the temple. And there was an interview with Stendhal with a uh, with a uh, gosh, I can never say his name right. There's an interview with him where he actually cites Holy Envy. It, it's like this mm-hmm. neat little back and forth with Truman Madsen and him, and he actually mentions baptisms for the dead mm-hmm. as the Holy Envy mm-hmm. that he cultivates for the Mormon Church. Right. I mean, Lutheran theology to this day has no provision for the salvation of people who have never heard the gospel uh, through through no fault of their own. They died bef- before hearing the gospel. There's nothing. Uh, there's no. There's no. There's nothing in Lutheran theology for for them. Hmm. Um, the assumption is that, well, they they might be in hell because without faith in Christ, they cannot be saved, and there's no way for them to have faith in Christ without being hurt, without hearing the gospel, and there's no salvation after death. So the assumption of, of many Lutherans is, well, they, they probably are in hell. Hmm. And... Uh, that is uh, definitely, obviously, a holy envy that that people rightly would have for our tradition. Anyway, mm. one day we will be the envy of the world when we get things right for queer folks. One day. One day, my guy. Yeah, one day. Anyway, is that a good place to end for us? I think so. Very good. Somehow we managed to take two sections four sections of not very many words and I think we talked more about the Bible than we did the well that's because I <laughs> didn't plan out everything I, I mean, was going to say 
it happens it happens but like i'm glad we did anyway i'm glad we went off on these little tangents there was a lot of there was a lot of goodness in there and i'm i'm glad we got it out so uh mm-hmm. before we go ahead and uh, wrap up I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com and Twitter and Instagram by searching for Beyond uh, at BTBLDS. And you can find us on Facebook by searching for Beyond the Block. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to think. Do we got any events coming up or anything we got to put the people onto? No, but I do have a challenge for everyone out there. And I think I've said this challenge once a while back, but I'm going to say it again. Is for all of you listeners, f- find one or maybe two, or pick one particular episode and share that particular episode with particular people with a note as to why. I think if you tell people, oh, just listen to Beyond the Block, like, yeah, whatever. But if you tell them, oh, listen to this particular episode, I know that you'll get something out of it. People might uh, be more likely to listen and, and then be able to engage and have the benefit of listening to what we have to say. Yeah, yeah. Also, we wanted to give a special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show and to David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Also to Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for helping out with our social media and uh, also the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines mm-hmm. also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from the same week. So all of that is wrapped into these outlines. You can also um, find a link to the outlines in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Uh, that link is tinyurl.com slash btboutlines, I believe. Is that right, Derek? Right, that's right. Hoorah. And uh, same can be said, well, you can find the transcripts also in the show notes and in the uh, drop-down menu on the uh, on the website. So I think that is everything. Am I missing anything, Derek? Nope, that's it. Very good. Then thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Later, everyone. Bye. <laughs>